I think the world is changing so quickly that organizations are finding it very difficult to actually know what solutions they need to have to address the problems of a market that's changing so quickly. So who do they want to work with? They want to work with people like yourself, Andy, who's coming in with a particular mindset, which is maybe let's define what the problem is or the opportunity and work backwards. That, according to my research, is a very rare thing to happen. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Philip Squire. He's the CEO of Cancelia, a multinational sales consulting firm based out of London and author of a new book titled Selling Transformed, Develop the Sales Values, which deliver competitive advantage. The sales values, and I love that word. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Phil, and I believe you will too, because in his book, Phil suggests that a new paradigm for selling is required, one that is based on values and belief systems. Now, he talks about the research that his firm conducted in countries around the world, and they found that customers continue to express low opinions of salespeople. Perhaps not surprisingly, the customers are frustrated that most salespeople didn't listen enough and didn't present solutions aligned to their requirements. And salespeople, quite frankly, the customers felt were manipulative and not trustworthy. Now, value and character are not words that are used much in sales, but in our conversation, we dig into why the behaviors of salespeople are influenced by values and beliefs and not just competencies. And why, unless the underlying personal values are in place, conventional sales behaviors and conventional behavior-based sales methodologies just won't work. So this is a fascinating discussion that gets to the heart of sales performance. You'll make sure you stick around for the whole thing. Before we get to Phil, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Phil, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Andy. Thank you very much for inviting me. And you're joining us from where? I'm joining you from Southwest London. Southwest London? Yeah, near, I don't know if you know Richmond. I think I've been through there. Isn't isn't Heathrow sort of south and west? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Heathrow is about 20 minutes from here. Uh, So we're, we're near the river. Yeah, so it's a good location to be if you're doing a lot of international travel, which, of course, we're not doing a whole load of at the moment. Yeah, I was going to say. It sounds like in your past <laughs> you've done a lot of that, though. I have, yeah. Yeah, I've spent a lot of my life traveling and uh, living abroad in different places. And where did you live abroad that perhaps was most interesting? Well, I was born in Ascension Island. Oh, what, in the middle of the Atlantic? In the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. How I don't know if that's happen? the most... Well, of course, my mother was there, which had quite a lot to sure. do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Good connection, yeah. But yeah, well, did... actually, Ascension at the time had 90 inhabitants. And it, uh, because of its location in the middle of the Atlantic, strategically, it's really important for telecoms. Right. So they're cables that connect, you know, they go under the ocean and they, they come up in Ascension and then they're boosted, you know, signals are boosted yeah. across to Africa. And then they built a satellite station there. So you, your father, a cable and wireless guy? Yeah, my father was cable and wireless. 
Ah. So you, you know cable and wireless, do you? Oh, yeah, they were a customer, yes. <laughs> oh, okay, there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and actually what was interesting is uh, shortly after they moved um, to Ascension, so I was conceived on the ship on the way over to, to Ascension. <laughs> and, um, and then, yeah, the Americans decided to build um, a, a runway on Ascension, you know, before mm-hmm. you could only get there by ship. Mm-hmm. And it was where Ascension was the target practice for the Polaris missiles. Oh. And so, yeah, we used to, well, not me, I don't remember it much, but uh, parents used to watch these missiles falling into the sea around Ascension as they were <laughs> so, testing their accuracy. <laughs> so they weren't actually trying to hit the island. <laughs> they were trying no, to get no, close. get somewhere close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but uh, no, it was, it, it, I mean, historically, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting, pretty barren, it's a pretty barren island, but um, after Darwin had been to the Galapagos Islands on his mm-hmm. famous trip, he stopped by Ascension, which was totally barren with no, no vegetation, and uh, decided, is it possible to, to actually create life where no life exists? So he was kind of countering his ideology around survival of the fittest. Right. And so when he got back to the UK, he then got... Um, people to, uh, who were traveling back, uh, his number two said, plant trees on Ascension. And so what they've done now, if you look at uh, Google Maps and you look at Ascension Island, you'll see the top of Ascension is a tropical rainforest. But it wasn't like that when we were there. And, uh, and so it's become a center of quite interesting scientific research because you can create something out of nothing. Very well, there you okay. go. So right, I don't know well, if that's the most interesting place, but well, I thought that, I'd start that where wins I was born. The prize for anybody I've ever spoken to. So that's great. Uh, okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. there we go. Who can claim they've been on Ascension? Uh, very few. Very few. Yeah, if you get ninety people at a time, that yeah, yeah most of interesting duty to live in such a remote place with so few people. So, um, yeah, but cable and wireless, yeah, did that. I know for people all over the world in interesting places. So. Um, all right. Well, good. Well, let's let's talk about your book. You've written a book titled "Selling Transformed: Develop the Sales Values Which Deliver Competitive Advantage." And we're going to spend some time talking about values because this is something I think is a topic that isn't discussed much uh, in relation to sales. So, so let's just start. With what was the impetus to write this book? Um, well, the impetus was was. Um it was sort of accidental in a way that we were asked by a number of clients to um, go and interview their customers about how they wanted to be sold to. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the, the first person that I interviewed said that in his view, 95% of salespeople were a complete waste of time. Wow, and he's being generous. He was, <laughs> maybe. The second person said maybe 10%, and the third didn't give a... Did, didn't give a percentage figure, but said fairly low, and it 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 triggered um, it triggered a question, which was you know perhaps these people are just cynical buyers, and um, but perhaps there's something underneath that they're saying that um, that I could explore further, and mm-hmm. by complete chance I met someone who was at um, a university in London, and uh, he said why don't you turn your inquiry into a doctorate research program? And so that then led me on a journey 
um, across the world interviewing customers about how they wanted to be sold to. Mm-hmm. And um, what was interesting about about the journey is that, and I know some of your previous interviewees, and I think you've talked about it when you talk about bias. You know, I think you've spoken about that word right. before. And I realized after a couple of years of doing the research and talking to people that um, that I was influenced by um, the notion of competence and uh, sort of coming to conclusions that didn't really tell me why customers were so negative about salespeople, you know, and I... Uh, I, it was a quite a low point in, in, in the doctorate because I'd spent two years doing this research coming up with no new theory on what it was that customers were were not liking, knowing that many right. of our clients were actually investing huge sums of money in the, in the competencies that, sure. that came up. And then I was on, uh, I was on a, a research module and, and the professor said, Phil, what are your values? And I you know, I remember thinking, well, you come up with the general ones like integrity and honesty and things like this and family orientated, perhaps. Mm. But I realized I hadn't really thought deeply about what they were. Mm -hmm. And I then went on a journey to kind of trying to find what they were. So I looked at pivotal events that happened to me in my life, which informed the person that I was. Right. And and then began to realize that actually with with the research data that I had, that customers were talking about values more than, you know, more than behavior. And uh, this then was um, a huge step forward in the way I began to look at all the data. But you're talking about behavior in the sense of competency-based behaviors as opposed to values-based behavior, though. Yeah, I'm, I think the way you can look at it and the, what is you can look at it a bit like an onion, where at the core of the onion you've got your soul, if you like, and then you've mm-hmm. got your purpose wrapped around your soul. Um, and then say your purpose is in sales, it's going to be influenced by the values you have as an individual, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what you believe is important. That will that will drive the kind of purpose you have as an individual. And then and then you've got wrapped around that, you've got competence, and then around that you've got behavior. And so the lens through which I was looking initially at the research data and where I think many many people kind of focus when it's when they start to look at sales effectiveness is how can we how can we change the behavior of salespeople to perform better let's say mm. and address the problem as a behavioral stage um, what I what I began to realize would actually customers when when they're having conversation with salespeople look beyond behavior into what are their key values mm-hmm. And the reason why those key values are important to customers are that they're a predictor of how people will behave in a given situation. So I don't know if that kind of... Well, I think it's... Yeah, my point was I think that there are certain behaviors that are driven by your values. You could be integrity, but also it could be, you know, hey, I'm... I'm, If I'm going to ask somebody a question, I'm going to listen to understand as opposed to listen to respond, for instance. Correct. I don't don't call that a competency. I call that sort of a value. And that drives one set of behaviors, you know, the competency in terms of, you know, presentations or demos or things that are more superficial. I'll call it superficial uh, because they're on the surface. But 
you know, I think that customers, I think you talk about this in the book, is that you know, customers experience sellers at both levels. But I believe, as I believe you do, is that they experience that values-based one first. Right? I, that's exactly, first. Andy, that's exactly, uh, I think we're on the same uh, kind of wavelength. Um, and yeah, I was, I was really interested to work back from the behaviors that they said uh-huh. they liked and didn't like into what, what you know what are the core values you need to right. have right. that would lead you know like you said curiosity would lead to the way you listen and the way you ask questions and so on and and that's what I did I I mm-hmm. then took all of the kind of behavioral data that we had um, I, again this was from different geographies around the world and actually right. sort of tried to then work back to define what, what well, what are the core values, and then and then of course was the big question. Well, if you know the values that customers are looking for in salespeople, you know, can you can you can values change? You know, can you do anything to change sure. someone's values? Right, uh, which became an interesting exercise in its own right. Yeah, well, I want to I want to get into that because I think that's an important one. But just to sort of summarize a little bit, what we talked about is this idea is that. You know, in the challenger sale, they Gartner, you know, the authors Brian Adamson and Matt bring up this idea of, you know, fifty-three percent of a buyer's decision is based on their experience with of the individual uh, that's selling to them. And I think there was a later study that talked about. Uh, I think also from Gartner showed that um, sellers actually, or excuse me, buyers actually. You know the level of trust that's most important is with the individual, not with the company they represent. So it all sort of comes back to the person. So if they've got this huge disconnect, where we've got uh, to your point, is a large, large fraction of buyers unhappy with the interactions with sellers. That experience of them as individuals is decisive. I think it's it's hugely decisive, and I think that. Uh, a lot of the, um, you know, I found some of the work done by a Dr. Um, Julian Birkinshaw quite interesting because he talked mm-hmm. about uh, changing sources of competitive advantage. And, right. you know, we're in an internet knowledge-fueled era. And I think a lot of the suggested wisdom in sales was that you, you know, the way that you, you know, are going to make yourself different is to provoke a certain type of conversation or an, an insight-led yep thing to try and catch something provocative provocative selling provocative selling exactly um and you know that that didn't entirely correlate you know to the research that i was doing which Mm. was was that um you know which was that customers look for something more than just an insight you know they look for a set of core values which which i defined in the book Mm -hmm. yeah i i I agree. I, mean, I think people are trying to uh, put all sorts of names on things. Yeah, insights-led selling, uh, provocative selling. I know some people have pushed that. The challenger sale, same thing. I mean, it's not there's not value in sort of the idea behind the challenger because, yeah, I found that has been very useful from a competitive standpoint over the years. Yeah, no, the challenger was great because I published my uh, dissertation um, uh, just uh, three or four months before the Challenger book, you know, mm-hmm. came out, and I, I was, I loved the, the the notion of Challenger, you know, I loved it, but there is a there there is something behind the word 
challenge, challenger, which I it can be construed as slightly negative. Yes. It, yeah. Um, so, um, but the no, but that's not the intent in the book. In fact, I speak about tactful audacity, right. which is you know the art of knowing how far not to go too far. Right. You know, which is which is absolutely, I think, the sentiment behind what's written in the book. So I, I was extremely pleased that the book was um, written and researched so well, because in a way it correlated um, a lot of what was written in in that book correlated to the some of the research findings that I had. The difference, I think, that exists is that rather than dealing with techniques of challenging at a behavioral level, mm-hmm. I think you need to go down to values. And unless that's, unless that's written in the operating system, you know, the way I like to describe it is you've got the operating system of a, of a computer, and then on mm-hmm. top of that, you've got different applications. Well, if the operating system is wrong, it doesn't matter what applications you have sitting on it, they won't work. I agree, 100%. I mean, I think this, this is, in some respects, you know, I was reading your book and, and again, thinking and sort of correlating things that I do and write and talk about is that, you know, we're, there's this core and this core hasn't really changed. And we can level or layer on top of it whatever we want, but we're still going to come back to the exact same point, which is that, you know, I, I sort of the problem I had with Challenger is not that the idea was wrong, but the, what many people took away from it was, well, we can scale challenger just you know we can hire and scale it and to me it's like no there's certain people who can do it and you can sort of identify who they might be based on values and character and so on but not everybody's gonna be able to do it uh, yeah i i agree and i mean we know the with the challenger organization very well in fact mm-hmm. we we work with them in Asia in helping them, you know, through our network of consultants that we have to deliver sure. the program there. So we know the program really well and really like the company. Um, but I, th- it's very interesting. I remember when I first started talking about values that that um, I spoke to an editor of SAMA, of Velocity magazine. I don't know if you know Velocity, the magazine. I've heard of this. Yeah. And he said, well, we've done value-based selling. And I, I said, I, I, yeah, value-based selling has been around a long time, but I, I'm actually talking about values. And, and it, 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 was, uh, it was just interesting. I found it quite hard, actually, to get this notion of values firmly on the table. And, and so this is, this is you know, why sure. I wrote the book, I suppose. <laughs> well, just but, I, it, but look at the way that, that salespeople are hired. Yeah. I mean, who asks questions about values? Who asks questions it, about character? Who asks values about or questions about these the most fundamental things that, to your point, and and I believe the same thing is that inform how they're going to interact with buyers, regardless of methodology. And they don't. I mean, I, I know very few organizations uh, that have taken that step to integrate those types of questions into their interviewing process. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and 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 I. You know, I think it is, and, and and I suspect if you were to ask at an interview, you know, what are your values, you'd probably get the same response as I did to the, you know, I, I don't know, I haven't really thought about them. You know, you kind of get them, you acquire them as you grow, which, you know, and, and you've never really seriously thought about it. 
Um, and and that's what's been such a fascinating journey is where you you can take people through defining what they really are, linking them to the values that customers want, mm-hmm. and then saying, well, you know, where are the connections? And again, when it comes to interviewing people, yeah. you know, it's you know, you, there are two ways you can do it, I think. You can do it at a fairly high level, which is here's a group of words. You know, here's a group of words. Choose words that you think reflect your core values. That's one way of doing it, which is fairly simple, and there's all sorts of assessment tools that you can use to do that. The other way of doing it is actually look, which is what I did, um, was actually look at pivotal events in your life that have happened exactly. and, and exploring how you've reacted or not reacted Right. That really tells you what your core values are. And actually, when you take people on that journey, they, they find it quite liberating. Well, I think that my experience has been is, is those people most consistently successful in this profession of sales are much more conscious about what those values are and how they represent those values in the work that they do. And, and maybe it's just true of people who are successful in any endeavor, is they're much more conscious about themselves, more self-aware, more conscious of the work that they have to put in to become better. And yeah, I think it's those that just sort of try to float through that aren't aware of that, don't understand how they're being perceived, how they're being received by by the buyer, and um, find it much more of a struggle. I mean, I, I you know, we talk about values-based selling. I always thought about well, sort of interesting about. What about just conscious selling, right? Is is being in the moment and being conscious of the impact and the the perception you're creating in the minds of others? Yes, I'll have to kind of reflect on that. I, I think conscious is is. Uh, I mean, we, we when we talk about what critical skills do you need to survive in this current market, one of the terms that we use is reflective practice. Mm-hmm. And critical reflection, and mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit what you're talking about. Conscious, you know, being right. conscious, you know, being in the moment. But I think it's, I think that um, the critical reflection bit is is the process that you go through in order to challenge and to question at a mm-hmm. fairly deep level, mm-hmm. which I guess that process makes you more conscious. So, so yeah. I agree. Yeah, I think okay. it leads to to what you were saying about about being conscious. Yeah, it's a good word. Yeah, I mean, I, I got into an argument with somebody online about, you know, conscious, unconscious competence, conscious competence. And I was arguing the fact that, <laughs> is that yeah, I understand the whole thing about being in a flow state, but when you're in a business where you're dealing with somebody you've never, let's say you really don't know that well, you form some sort of personal connection with and so on, but you have to be extremely attuned to that individual every time you interact with them because you don't know them well enough like a good friend to just make an assumption and, and get into the flow. You have to be conscious of what's happening. You have to be conscious about what you're trying to accomplish in that interaction. And um, that's why I talk about yeah, sort of this conscious selling as opposed to unconscious competence. It's like, no, you, you need to be present at all time. And I think there's a level of awareness you need to have, personally, I believe, that... that uh, Again, it's what's going to separate those who are more consistently successful from those who aren't. I wouldn't disagree with that at all, Andy. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we can give up now. We're done. <laughs> the interview's over. <laughs> well, let's, let's go through your, some of your values you talk about, because I think it's very interesting. You had both negative and 
and positive values. And and you write that that you can use mindset and values interchangeably, and I think that's that's true. As I interested what you think. And this is yeah, I look at everything as sort of pairs. A mindset is actually a pair, right? Of of attributes on opposite ends of a spectrum, right? <laughs> 180 degrees apart. And we're all some mix of that, right? I mean, if you're mm-hmm. growth mindset or fixed mindset, they're not distinct. They're one extreme version of the other. Um, yeah. And I sort of saw that with with the values that, that you talked about is that, you know, we all embody, none of us are all one mindset. We're, we're a mix. We're a mix, yeah. I think it's... Um yeah, when we when we looked at the um, yeah when we looked at the values, initially we didn't have them. You know that the negative values and the positive values, if you like, the customer kind of saw. We didn't see them as being opposite. But then, mm-hmm. as time went on, we began to see them being opposite mm-hmm. ends of a, a kind of a spectrum, as you say. Right. You know what's the, what's the opposite of being authentic? It's someone who's manipulative. You know what's the yes. opposite, opposite to being client centric? It's someone, you know, who is uh, supplier centric, and right. so on. Um, so yeah, and and it's quite interesting that when you start to 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 explore the topic, um, you you also start to get into how much of how a salesperson acts or reacts is informed by the selling system in which they have to work. Yes. Yeah? So so you have a sales manager, for example, who is, you know, talking to you about reaching a a quota. You know, to what extent is he influencing you to manipulate the conversation to try and get the deal done, you know, this quarter, which may not be in the right interest of the client? You know, there, there are all sorts of living contradictions that can happen. And how you navigate your way as, I think, a salesperson um, is interesting in that journey. Well, don't we sort of put salespeople in sort of an impossible position in many respects? Because so many of the methodologies that, that exist that we train people in, uh, I think, are designed to encourage yeah, manipulative, manipulative type of behaviors. I mean, so Andy, I totally, yeah, I totally agree, and I think <laughs> this is where this is where a lot of the um, you know sales techniques that I held dear to me in my early sales career, I would say, you know, whether it's um, whether it's even spin selling or you know mm-hmm. uh, dealing with objection handling. I know I, I I shouldn't you know you know people love spin selling but actually you're manipulating conversation to a certain point yeah sure where you get the well, sale and yeah. and so a lot of you know I think I think you're absolutely right and I think that of course customers have wisened up to that you know a lot of buyers are trained in these <laughs> oh, techniques sure <laughs> yeah I mean but I the point I bring up and have brought up on this show before too and also in my writing is that. Yeah, isn't that sort of ironic that in the U.S. alone, I think like close to $20 billion a year spent uh, each year on sales training? And, well, let me take a step back. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, Jonah Berger wrote a book called The Catalyst. I don't know if you read it, uh, Wharton Professor. No, I haven't. Uh, about persuasion. And yeah. he said, you know, cited research saying that this is sort of a universal 
I don't call it bias, but a universal instinct that everybody has is they, what do you call persuasion reactants? They resist being persuaded. And so I said, you know, isn't ironic that we spend $20 billion a year in the United States alone, and who knows how much else around the world, to fundamentally train salespeople to act in the one way that all the buyers universally hate? It seems so incredibly obvious, doesn't it, Andy? And and it, and and I I'm going to read that book. By the way, I haven't read it yet. Um, but but the statistic that I came up with when I did the research, and I st- we we still conduct you know surveys, is that mm-hmm. less than ten percent of salespeople sell in a way customers want. Yeah, doesn't surprise me at all. You know and. In there, you felt I think the figure was quite high at ten percent, <laughs> but uh, um, but actually, you know that you know that that's what triggered the research because I I felt that I I didn't want to be in a profession where we were just getting that ten percent. Yeah. You know, I began to question what I was doing at the mm-hmm. time quite seriously and thinking maybe we're approaching this in completely the wrong way. And that was a that was a kind of midlife crisis, you know, trying to reconfigure what it was that we were trying to do, which is improve sales performance. Right. Well, I I as I like to say, I think we train sellers to aim at the wrong target with the wrong tools. Yeah. Other than that, we do a great job. And the but challenge is, yeah, the challenge is that a lot of the people in senior leadership positions actually, you know, have been perhaps old school trained, and uh, and of course are going to bring in what you know what's helped them. So it's quite difficult to actually break new ground, I would say. Well, I think there's also a, a complacency that sets in at the top when yeah. you know you title your book is selling transformed, but. Yeah, I think one of the problems that we have in sales is that so much of the change is is incremental, and there really hasn't been a, a fresh look at sales. I mean, everybody wants to talk about modern selling these days, but that really refers to what's going on at the top of the funnel, by and large. Yeah, and yes, we've used technology to great effect to be able to uh, reach out and engage with potential buyers, but when you get to the actual sales part of it, yeah. I, yeah, I've talked to a lot of companies, a lot of people on the show, uh, in my career, and it's like, huh, boy, we're basically doing things the same way they've been done for decades. You know, look well, at yes, sale. you must get. How do you keep your enthusiasm, Andy, you know, for, <laughs> for these interviews? Uh, I mean, I don't know how you do it, and you've done so many. Um, you know, I was thinking to myself earlier on, I think, gosh, blimey, how is he going to approach this one? You know, um, but actually... Well, I think what you say well, is well, because, like you, I'm an advocate because I think that there is yeah. promise and I think that there is opportunity. But yeah, I think what you've written is important for people to read. I think uh, Frank Cespedes' new book, because I saw that he was one of your yes. blur people, um, and you may have been on his new book as well. I can't remember. Um, but again, he's taking a a different look at. Hey, yeah. You know, how do we really structure the sales process to align with how buyers are buying? And that is, you know, it shouldn't be as radical as it as it sounds, but these days it is because, it, regardless of the innovation and the technology brought to bear, it's like a veneer of technology applied to a sales process and sales stages that have been, yeah. You know, I was trained in these same things forty years ago. 
And yeah, my I sales think, yeah. back then looked just like they look in every large enterprise sales CRM today. Yes, I think I well, I I believe that's you know that's that's correct. And of course, the context of the world in which we live is changing. Mm. Um, and you know what people are looking for, therefore, is changing perhaps subtly. But the thing that kind of surprised me is how rarely that question get, it gets asked, which is how do buyers want salespeople to sell to them? Mm-hmm. You know, there's all this stuff about NPS scores, you know, and service-orientated kind of surveys, right. but very that question itself doesn't get asked. And I would have thought it's the first question that every sales leader should be asking of its customers. How do you want us to sell to you? It's such a simple question. Yeah. Well, and to your point, is. is yeah, you know, if you look at the research Gartner did in, published in 2018 or 19 about buyer enablement, I think it was 18, 2018, and and talked about um, yeah, buyers have four jobs they're trying to accomplish, and and if they and there was lots of you know in their flowchart they call their spaghetti diagram because it looks like a handful of spaghetti thrown up against the wall, but in this recursive complex process at heart were four jobs the buyer's trying to get accomplished. And I think they're actually five, but they call four. But nonetheless, as I haven't talked to one sales leader who said, oh, well, hmm, shouldn't we try to align our selling process with the jobs the buyer's trying to accomplish? Seems like it would make sense, right? Yeah. You know, we're gonna we're gonna measure our progress through for getting an order, not by whether we went through discovery, qualification, and so on, but by on the jobs. Did we did the buyer accomplish this job? Did they accomplish the second job? And there's just this, and I think Frank Cespedes points it out in his book. There's just this growing chasm between the way we're selling to buyers and the way they're buying and the way they want to buy. Absolutely, um, I I think that's uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so it's it's a huge opportunity, and it's it's not a it's not rocket science. It's it's no. fairly simple, isn't it? So yes. why 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 are we making it? Okay, why are we making it so complicated, Andy? I mean, you've interviewed so many people. <laughs> if it's well, that I, simple, why isn't it being done? I mean, that's a key. That's a key question. That is the key question. I, and I said, I think it's complacency. It's complacency. Yeah. Because I think that that. Yeah, it's good enough for a lot of sales leaders and corporate leaders. And they're already saying, look, we're not really sure. We got a great ROI of the sales training we do and we invest all this money in it, which is understandable because most of it's pointless, right? And delivered in a way that's quickly forgotten and so on. We got all these you know structural problems with sales training. And they just sort of say, Okay, well this is this is good enough, right? I mean, think about something as simple as having this conversation with somebody yesterday. Or a couple of days ago, um, about coaching, sales coaching. You know, we know from the research that exists as much as it that you know, effective coaching, perhaps the single most important thing you can do for creating uplift in sales performance. And yet, and I always give the example. I said, well, look at it in the context of you know, a Premier League football team. Look at their coaching staff now compared to 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Look at the number of specialized coaches they've brought in to deal with specific aspects of performance. We're in a performance profession, yet what we do is take a 24-year-old who's just happened to be good at selling 
and say, look, you're now a frontline manager, and we're not going to equip you hardly at all <laughs> with any of the tools you need to help coach improve performance. And we're not going to really teach you how to be a good coach. And we expect this to take place. And then the next level up, you know, the director of sales, the VP of sales. How many VPs of sales have been trained on performance improvement techniques? I'd say probably none. Yet there's a science of performance improvement that exists out there. And, and other performance-based professions, like sports, I know people hate sports analogies, but this, this one works extremely well. It, it works, but we're so loath to you know, mix up sort of the financial equation around sales yeah, it's it's so interesting, but I th- I think again you come back to why don't people why do people do things or not do things? And I mm-hmm. I come back to values again. If your if your values and your belief st- systems were strong enough, you would do it. If you really believed it was important, you would do it. Right. So right. the way to the way to get people to do more coaching, let's say, mm-hmm. is to explore what their core values are, because if their core values do not believe really that coaching is going to do anything, they won't do it. Well, but I think we've got this push-pull that exists these days because we have much more trend, you know, visibility into what's happening at sort of every step of the sales process through all of the tools, many of which are great tools like RingDNA's tool and so on. They're fantastic tools if they're used in the right way. Yeah. But what happens now is sales managers sort of feel this pressure to report on the metrics up the chain and they they're time constrained especially depending on how many people they're managing and the serve just piles on to each other and you get to the top people just looking at you know a few critical indicators on the kpis the person gets lost in the whole thing and we wonder why salespeople are churning every 14 months we wonder why sales leaders are churning every 18 months and so on is is We've got this point where it's like, well, let's just take the human out of the equation. Right? So it's, it's the opposite of what you're writing about, which is it's so It's the important. opposite. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, I, I, yeah, I completely agree, uh, you know, around the coaching. I mean, what, what we've observed is there are two schools of thought. Sometimes you can outsource coaching and, you know, get coaches coaching, not managers, but professional right. coaches coaching Coach. a, right. a team. Um, or whether it's a job that the managers should be doing as part of their you know, job description, if you like. Um, we've seen success in both areas, but 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 it's interesting and true what you say. That there's no question in our view that those managers who really do understand coaching get a huge amount more out of their teams than those that don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but very few managers really know how to coach properly. And as a result, they don't, they don't feel very competent at it, and they don't want to do things they don't feel good about doing, so it doesn't happen. Correct. But, hey, exactly. how many calls did you make this week? How many emails did you send? And yeah. and I know, and I get this pushback on this all the time, I, there are some teams that use the technology to great effect, and we want them to use these types of technologies to great effect. But <laughs> to the point of your book, it has to be informed by a set of values, and it has to become more universal. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about values is of the link to predictability of behavior. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that you can carry through from what customers are looking for, but it's also what managers should be looking for as well. You know, if you want to know how your salespeople are going to act or react in a sales call, 
knowing the values will actually help you to predict and anticipate how they're going to act. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's all interlinked. It's all interlinked. And it sounds as though there's some tools that you've referred to that can help in the diagnosis. Is that right? I'm talking about the Ring DNA tools yeah, that you talked about. Yeah, Ring DNA conversational AI product it yeah. enables you to listen to recorded calls, annotate them, look for keywords. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's certainly it's a great tool for coaches that want to be effective coaches yeah. as opposed to – and where I sort of push back is, is you know, this idea that in the hands of the wrong people, what they're trying to use these tools, to, I believe, to sort of make everybody sort of cookie-cutter clone of other people. And yeah. to the whole then point – Then you lose, yeah, you lose the authenticity. Own, yeah. Right. You lose the authenticity. Everybody's got their own set of values is you want to use these to help people become the best version of themselves. Correct. Which is going to be way better than if they're trying to act yeah. like someone else. Yeah. And But again, coaches oftentimes want to take the easy way out as opposed to investing the time. And I was giving the example again with a conversation I had with somebody earlier this week is, you know, sitting at a conference about four years ago, a uh, tech sales conference where there's a panel of CROs and VPs of sales Basically, sort of an agreement, and one of them says, "Well, we don't do one-on-ones anymore. They don't work." Okay. And I'm like, <laughs> I sort of gasp, right? Like, if people were listening, they would have heard me go. <gasps> but my second thing I didn't say, restrain myself from saying out loud, is, "Yeah, buddy, that's your problem. <laughs> that's yeah, you know, you're the one that's going to suffer from that." And but there was just sort of you know, everybody sort of nodding the head on the panel. It's like. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, if you're just doing them for deal review activity, uh, sure. Why? Why, you know, why do set aside an hour a week to review a pipeline? You should be talking to people every day, understanding, being in touch with it. But if you're trying to develop the capabilities of the individual, if you're trying to support them to achieve what they want to achieve in their career and their lives, that takes some one-on-one time. It sure does. Yeah, we absolutely agree with what you're saying. Uh, on the, uh, you know, we and that run is values a, of the managers to the point you made before. Is, yeah, uh, it is. Yeah, yeah. So the the values. I haven't spoken about values of managers in the book, but of course we've done work on that level, and we talk about vision, empowerment, potential, and desire to be the best is what we mm-hmm. think are the you know the key leadership values right. that are needed. So you know, again, how do you you know you take how do you develop people's potential? You know, if, right. if you if you don't have a value that feels that it's great to develop people's potential, you're not going to coach people. No. It just won't happen. So, again, when we start to talk about values as a leadership level, you know, what, what are, you know, what are they? And uh, I think your correlation with sport is absolutely correct. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's one people sort of tire of hearing, but I think it's, again, yeah, it's if you true. look at professions who are similar in terms of the the emphasis on performance and individual yeah. performance and yeah. collective performance that I don't think all sports apply, but I, I do think actually soccer is on applies quite well uh, because it's not it's not a series of set plays like you'd find in in American football it's it's more like basketball it's more there's a flow you have to you know you, you got to put yourself in the right position to be able to succeed when the moment arrives um, but this idea that they've you know they certainly 
probably the most advanced sport in terms of use of analytics and data, in terms of that, analyze performance, uh, analyze rest and recovery, all these aspects. And I was, again, I'm sure people on the show or listening to the show are tired of me hearing this, but you know, at, at Liverpool, which is my club that I support, they have a dedicated throw-in coach on staff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't think it's beyond uh, – <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's, it's a false hope to say, look, why, why can't we have people on staff? It's a whole different career path who are coaches, performance coaches. And this yeah. is what their job is. And rather than expect managers to do that and that we don't invest in them and just assume because they gave them a title they know what the hell they're doing, uh, let's get people to know what they're doing. And yes, it's going to cost a little more initially, but there should be a payback if you implement it correctly. Because you're going to have – got performance athletes. That's what sellers are. They're equivalent of performance athletes. Yeah. Of course, there's so many different parts of – what salespeople need to be good at doing, whether it's it's social selling or whether it's you know financial value based selling or whatever, you could mm. have performance coaches across all of those different disciplines if you if you wanted to. Yeah, oh, it could be just be simple, like you know, let's have a something that's good at qualification, sure. right? I mean, yeah, yeah, something that's good on discovery and teaching people how to actually ask questions, how to listen, uh, you know, just take through it's, yeah, I sort of think there's sort of four. You mentioned five values. earlier on. Say that again. You well, there's five jobs they need to do, but I, I think in terms of values that, or you could behaviors, I'm not really sure how to categorize them, but that sellers need to have is, which is, you know, they need to be able to have, a, make a connection with another human being. They need curiosity. They need to understand, they need to have, you know, this is what I call it understanding. And they need to be able to apply that understanding in a business context. I call that acumen. It's not very complicated, to your point. I mean, yeah. it's even your list of values are fairly, fairly simple, right? And few in number. Uh, positive values, authenticity, client centricity, proactive creativity, and tacti- tactful audacity, which I love that that phrase. I think much better than than challenger because the tactful audacity sort of speaks about an element of risk taking involved in it. And yeah, and it's also respect. It. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a friend of mine, Charlie Green, who was one of the original co-authors on Trusted Advisor and has written other yeah. books on trust-based selling and so on. You know, uses term bring a risky gift, be a barg barge. Um, that's what yeah. a seller should do, right? Is have the audacity to propose something to the buyer that. They could say, well, that's that's crap. Get out of here. But it, it's tactful. It's tactical. It's it's considered. But it's, yeah, there's some audaciousness and audacity associated with it. But if it's not grounded, if you, you know, I believe that, um, you know, I love that book, Trusted Advisor. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's fantastic. Um, and I refer, you know, I refer to it in, in the book that I've written. But I, I, what I noticed were that there are different levels of trust that you build, mm-hmm. and you, you know, unless you've got the authenticity value yep. ticked and the client centricity ticked, you can't do the proactive creativity and tactful audacity yes. bit. Otherwise, you'll come across as perhaps being a bit arrogant, or people will will say, and, "Yeah, presumptuous." Exactly. Yeah. No, um, so I saw it as a kind of development, a hierarchy, if you like. I of, agree. 
of, of values. And um, yeah, it's pretty rare to find people who live those values of proactive creativity and tactful audacity. Those are the, those are the most least, sorry, least common, but mm-hmm. actually the most fun. You can have so much fun working in those two areas and it's yeah. been a it's been a privilege to work with sales organizations on on just those two with you know with some of the larger deals that they've worked on well i think this is a word that we don't use enough in sales was fun, fun. Right? I, I mean it's deal making it's it's doing it a win you know getting a win-win and there's nothing more exciting i think than coming up with a solution that perhaps neither party had thought of, but mm-hmm. it kind of emerged from the quality of conversation you're having. Yes. To me, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's a great result. Yeah, I, 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 in my new book, I talk about, um, you know, how I, I spent you know, parts of my career selling products that didn't exist. So my job was, was I had to had sort of a bucket full of technologies the company had they hadn't commercialized and my job was to go find a large company that that we could come up with a problem that they needed to solve uh, that wasn't evident because I didn't have a product but I had just I said a bucket of technologies but go to large enterprises and and try to find a problem that they needed solving and have them pay us not only to develop the product but also to Manufacture the product for them, and so yeah, millions of dollars worth of of uh, wow. deals on that. But there's nothing more fun than that. I mean, I've talked to people about, yeah. and they were said, "Well, that sounds petrifying because I didn't have a product, I didn't know who I was going to talk to about what." But it's like, yeah, there's nothing more fun than that because yeah, you have to use your proactive proactive creativity. Uh, you have to be audacious in many respects to approach companies and said, "Hey, have you thought about doing this?" And it's like, no, but then to get to, yes, ultimately, nothing better. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, I, I think that, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, that's the purest form of sales. I think you've just described that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the right thing to do because you're starting from the customer and you're working backwards exactly. in, a, in a genuine way. And, and I guess if you didn't have the technology components inside what your company was doing, you'd find people that you could partner with, you know, to, to bring that right. solution together. So, you, yeah. But I think every, even if you have a set product, as every sales opportunity sort of starts out with is where you really don't have a product to sell. Because if you look at Gartner's four jobs, you identify, define a problem, you evaluate alternatives, you finalize your requirements, and then you select a vendor. Well, in my mind, and based on all my experiences and so on, is those first three jobs aren't product-centric. It's the customer trying to choose how to solve their problem. And so it's really, that's really a battle of ideas, not products. If you're doing it correctly, yeah, and I I think that in the in the post knowledge era that um, that Julian Birkinshaw sort of kind of describes, I think the world is changing so quickly that organisations are finding it very difficult to actually know what 
solutions they need to have to address the problems of a market that's changing so quickly. Mm-hmm. So who do they want to work with? They want to work with people like yourself, Andy, you know, who, who's coming in with a particular mindset, which is, yes. you know, maybe let's define what the problem is or the opportunity and work backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, uh, that, according to my research, is a rare, it's a very rare thing to happen. Yeah, but I, I encountered this uh, in my own sale, selling. When I, again, I was spent a lot of my career selling large com- well, complex satellite communication systems to people like Cable and Wireless. Okay, so there we, <laughs> there, there's, there's the Cable and Wireless link. I yeah. think we get that. <laughs> and, and, but similar companies around the world. Yeah. And I started experiencing this pattern in almost every deal, both the ones I won and the ones I, unfortunately, some I lost, was I recognized this point where I knew the customer had decided how they wanted to solve the problem and whether I was that solution or not. And it's almost like a design in to some degree, right? It's, yeah. it's almost like you're a component manufacturer trying to get a design in to, into a larger system somebody's developing. Well, that's really the way... I, to approach sales. So I, I called that moment, I called that winning the sale. It didn't mean I won the order, but I mean I'd won the sale. I knew my odds of winning the, the deal went up exponentially if I was if I mm. thought I was that person. And so there always is, in my mind, this this two steps that customers go through. So, you know, first they have to choose how they want to solve the problem, then they decide who they want to solve it with. And and if you have that come in with that mindset as a seller, you really are not coming in selling a solution. You're trying to understand what the problem is and what's the best approach uh, approach for them. What are the outcomes they want to achieve? And you're really dealing in ideas at that point as opposed to products. Mm. And unfortunately, I think we train sellers in using the Gartner model, the four steps, to skip the first three and to go to the fourth one, select the vendor. Yeah. And I think this is the huge disconnect. I think Frank sort of points this out in his book as well. Frank Cespedes is, yeah. is with the buying streams is like, yeah, we're just we're training people to skip over most of that. I think yeah, we train people to sort of skip over that that crucial part, which is why they don't have very good opinions about salespeople because what they feel like is oh, they're just trying to persuade me to buy their product, but I'm not really sure what the scope of my problem is that I'm trying to solve and what the best alternative is. And yet this person's trying to tell me this is the best solution for, well, we haven't really decided what the problem is yet. That's right. Yeah. I mean, some of the quotes that, that, uh, that we have is, you know, you, you know, customers know, they, they just know whether you're just there to sell a solution. You can tell with the PowerPoint presentations, whether they've just, you know, topped and tailed it with a different logo, but you know, the, you know, yep. this is your particular solution for you. They can, they can tell. You know, they sense, they sense right. how people work. Uh, and I think when sellers do that, they miss out on the fun because the fun do. is identifying the problem and saying, "How can we help the customer solve this problem? What's yeah. the fastest way we can help them?" And it may be slightly different than your standard product. It may be a little different than approach and the way you position it from what you normally do. That should be what keeps you in the game. You mentioned uh, two points. You mentioned the, you know, the defining what the problem was at the beginning, and then the, the second point, having defined what the problem is, do they want to work with you as opposed to someone else? Yeah, yeah and I would suggest that um, the people that they choose to work with are going to 
be aligned with the values that they want to yep. have in that I individual. I agree, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. All right. Well, Phil, unfortunately, we've run out of time. We could, I think, you and I could talk for a long time. We and... probably, yeah, we could, Andy. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Well, I think we'll have you back on at some point in the future, and we'll keep on talking about this because this is uh, not an issue we're solving here today. No. Well, I'd be <laughs> delighted to come back on if you wanted me to. And uh, Andy, it sounds like I should reach out to you as well in a in a professional capacity. Oh, let's and do. I, let's I think, do. yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, Phil, if people want to learn more about the book and connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, it's published in America. You know, it's you know through Amazon. It's selling published. transformed. Yeah, selling transformed. It's uh, it's, it's available through Kogan Page, um, the publisher, and Waterstones and Foils, um, which are more UK based uh, yes. retail outlets. But but Amazon is probably the major one. Good. And if they want to connect with you, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, absolutely, or reach out to us on the mind on the on on the website. And if people were interested and wanted to do a survey on their own mindsets, then they can do that by getting onto the mindset survey page on the on the website as well. Excellent. Okay, Phil. Cool. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so been. much. <laughs> Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Phil Squire, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, we'd certainly appreciate it. So thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.